Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, John chapter 7, beginning with verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is the thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of John chapter 7. Let's once again ask for God's help in a brief word of prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege that we have to open your word, to come and consider together what it is that the Holy Spirit has for us today in our specific need from this specific passage. Father, we pray that you would help us to lay aside everything that would be an obstacle or a distraction from receiving this word. And may we receive it as the word of God, as the word of salvation, as that which is able to make us wise unto salvation. Father, we pray that your word would have its work, its proper work and effect in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been considering over several months now the biblical references to the town of Bethlehem. We started with the end of the book of Judges, where there are a couple of characters who come from Bethlehem, although those characters were most instructive by way of contrast. They were not very admirable characters who were held up for our imitation. We then looked at the book of Ruth, whose primary plot takes place in and around Bethlehem. 
We considered a couple of episodes from the life of David, who, of course, is a native of Bethlehem. We looked at the book of Micah, how it was predicted that the ruler of Israel would arise from Bethlehem, small though it was. And now as we conclude our series, we come here to John chapter 7, where some people confusedly resist acknowledging Jesus as the Christ because they're expecting Christ to come from Bethlehem and they think he comes from Galilee instead. There are a couple of other references to the town of Bethlehem, of course, in the Bible, most famously in the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke. But those get looked at so often in different contexts that I didn't think I should plug them into the series. So for the last reference from the series, we come today to John chapter 7 and specifically verse 42. Now what's happening here, and really what's happening in this whole section in the book of John, is that there's a record of the sort of confusion, the conflict that is arising around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. People are adopting different postures about him. They're arguing about those different postures. And in our reading, we saw some of those postures exemplified. There's the posture of the leaders, the Pharisees and the rulers, and they're very clear on what their attitude is. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? That's a rhetorical question, and they're expecting the answer to be no. The religious leadership are unanimous in rejecting him. At least that's the claim they're making. Of course, that claim is diminished right away when Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus because Nicodemus was one of them. So even among the rulers, the rejection was not unanimous, even though most of the rulers did reject him. But anyway, that's one attitude. There's rejection. There's the attitude of Nicodemus. He's open, he's curious, he wants to know more. He's a secret disciple, but he's not more than that. He's not avowedly in support of Christ. Well, there's others who join in the attitude of the rulers. His own family, for instance. Chapter 7 and verse 3, we read, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe on him. So there's an attitude of rejection. There's an attitude of secret interest and engagement. There's the attitude reflected by the officers who were sent to arrest him and didn't. They said, no man ever spoke like this man. Now that's not very strong. That's not a clear resounding, I'm with Christ. It's we can't arrest him, he's amazing. Well, that's true, but that doesn't go terribly far. And then you have this conflict of opinions where people are somewhat positive, but they don't quite know what to make of him. So some people say, well, this is the prophet, the prophet who had been predicted by Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Other people say, 
that's not strong enough. He's the Christ. But then there's this question, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Around swirling around Christ then are all of these different perspectives that range from secret interest, secret commitment to open hostility, and that cover the the range of possible opinions in between. Some people are against him more or less strongly. Some people are for him more or less strongly. But what you don't have is agreement. What you don't have is unity. And that really brings us to our first point. The truth about Christ, the person of Christ, the fact of Christ, is divisive. It does stir up conflict and controversy. Now, sometimes people hear that or people see that, people experience that, and they get discouraged. It's possible to think, well, if we were doing things right, there'd be more agreement. There would be more unity. Now, please don't overinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there are no sinful divisions within the Christian church. I'm not saying that all of our conflicts are warranted or based on good grounds or don't just reflect us being petty or something along those lines. Clearly, there's a lot of that sort of thing as well. But will there be division around Christ? Yes, there will. He was able to say of himself that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And when he was here, there was division around him. There was conflict and controversy. There was argument. Christ is not divided. He is who he is. But people are divided in their response to that. They're divided in what they know about him. They're divided in what they think about him based on what they know. They're divided on how they feel about him. And so wherever the preaching of Christ goes, one of the results that we have to expect, one of the things we have to anticipate is division. Hopefully that will mostly be expressed in the form of debate, in the form of back and forth, questions and answers. But, of course, sometimes it will be reflected in the form of hostility. Nicodemus raises a procedural point. How can we be against him when we haven't given him a hearing, when we haven't come to a judicial verdict? They shut him down with prejudice. Are you also from Galilee? Are you willing to acknowledge your unfortunate origin from this despised backwater, semi-pagan part of Israel? That's not really a good answer. But Nicodemus keeps his mouth shut at that point as far as we're told in the text. It's not a good answer, but it is an effective way to shut down discussion. You see all of that happening around Christ, and you see all of that happening around the proclamation of Christ up until now. When Jesus came into the world, one of the results was division. Now, that's a strange result for the Prince of Peace, for the Son of Righteousness, as We called him when we were singing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's 
strange, not because we haven't gotten used to it, not because there's ever been anything else, but because it doesn't seem compatible with who he is. What's the reason for it? Well, the reason for it is that people do not receive him completely and wholeheartedly. Now, we need to understand there's a spectrum there. There are some people like the leaders here who reject him decisively. They don't want to They don't want to find out anything more. And then there's other people who it takes them a while to come around. It takes them a while to learn the truth. With either kind of division, we just have to accept it and roll with it. We just have to keep moving, continue to proclaim the gospel of Christ, answer sincere and well-meaning questions, and understand that not all of the questions or not all of the objections that are raised are like that. So from that general point now, we come to this false dichotomy, this curious rejection of Christ for not meeting a qualification that he did in fact meet. You hear it from the leaders speaking to Nicodemus. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. First of all, that's an illegitimate criterion. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say you will know a true prophet because he doesn't come from Galilee or because he comes from these approved regions. So they just made that up on the basis of examining, well, where are the prophets from? Where was Isaiah from? Where was Amos from? Et cetera, et cetera. But God never committed not to raise up prophets from a certain place. Now, we know there was a prejudice against Galilee, against Nazareth specifically, at the time. It's reflected in the Gospel of John. Even one of Jesus' disciples, he hears about Jesus, and his first reaction is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, the response to that is, come and see. And when Nathanael came and saw, he realized he needed to get over that. He needed to let the Nazareth objection go. But this particular objection is so ill-grounded, is so absurd, because they're saying that Jesus comes from Galilee, and that's true. He grew up in Galilee, but he was born in Bethlehem. Now, that's the sort of thing, if you really wanted to know the truth, you could ask. You could ask his disciples, or you could ask Jesus himself. But you see, there's this theme developing of confusion about where Christ is from. John chapter 6, verses 41 and 42. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Or then again, chapter 7 and verse 27. We know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And then again, our verse for today, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? What is happening with this little chain of verses? Well, People are having trouble wrapping their heads around Christ. He's counterintuitive. 
he doesn't meet their expectations. Now, they can't deny that there's something real going on here. They can't deny that there's something amazing, something remarkable, something way outside of their ordinary experience. But they're having trouble putting it together with the rest of what they know. Now, here again, as I said before, there's a spectrum from hostile rejection that then leads to dishonest objections to legitimate questions where somebody doesn't have enough information yet. And, of course, we continue to find that today. You have the same spectrum. Some people who reject and therefore come up with objections. Some people who are on their way to belief, but they still have unanswered questions. And those unanswered questions sit in their mind and bother them and hold them back. Well, if you're here this morning with unanswered questions, with stumbling blocks, with things that you can't see how they fit together, may I just encourage you to ask, raise the question. What if somebody had said to Jesus, instead of just muttering about it between themselves, what if they have said, how can you be bred from heaven when we know your relatives? How about that as a way forward? Or what if somebody turned the tables on them? On the one hand, you have people saying, nobody will know where the Christ is from. And on the other hand, you have them saying, we know that, he's from, that Christ is supposed to be from Bethlehem. Well, which of those two is it? Sometimes the questions are not singularly honest. Sometimes the questions have contradictions embedded in them. And of course, it's very hard to answer a question that is self-contradictory. That is a little bit of a dilemma to navigate. How do you give a simple answer to a question that's incoherent? Now, what are we going to do with all of this? We have this questioning going on, and we might have the further question, how come these people don't know the truth? Well, let me answer that, that last one first. How come these people did not yet know the truth? Well, for many of them, it was because they hadn't asked. They hadn't looked into it. They're troubled over things, they're arguing, but they haven't bothered to ascertain the facts. And if you think that still doesn't happen, may I invite you to the discussions that happen in YouTube comment sections. There are lots of wildly ignorant arguments that could be solved in two minutes if somebody would just listen to somebody who knows what they're talking about. It is ridiculous how convoluted people will get and they don't know the ABCs of the topic they're involved in. That's not at all unrealistic to have that here, to have these questions, even to have these different perspectives. Well, he might be the prophet. Well, he might be the Christ. You know, that's a false dichotomy because the prophet that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18 is the Christ. Those two ideas are brought together in the same person. But then there's also this false dichotomy. Is he from Galilee or is he from Bethlehem? He's from both. He was born in one because of the census. He was born in Bethlehem, even though Joseph and Mary were living in Galilee. But they went to Bethlehem at a very inconvenient time because of the census. Or if you want to put it back more broadly, because in God's sovereign control of all things, 
There was a census that dragged them down to Bethlehem at the right time in fulfillment of the word of the prophet. But Christ also needed to be in Galilee because there was another prophecy directed to those regions about how the people who sat in darkness would see a great light. Here's what often happens. People have an objection. They say, well, the Bible contradicts itself, or this or that or the other is incompatible. There are answers to those things. But I've had it happen to me. I remember going to lunch with one fellow. He printed out a list of like 68 (laughs) objections to Scripture. Well, he came prepared with objections. But all of those 68 things, it might have been only 65. I, I don't mean to exaggerate. All of those things, there is an answer to them if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to do as much work answering the questions as you were finding them. That's true with regard to the Lord Jesus as well. People still have these questions. People still have these concerns. People still feel these different tensions. But they won't, often they won't, make the effort to find a resolution. There are answers out there. There are ways to see how everything fits together. And specifically with regard to the Lord Jesus, we can see how these things fit together. How is he the bread from heaven when his family was known? That's answered. There is one person, Jesus, God the Son. But that one person has two natures. He is God the Son. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is all that God is. But he is also, because of the incarnation, flesh and blood. He can be God the Son, and he can be the offspring of David. He can have a hometown. You know, God doesn't have a hometown. People do. Humans do. But Jesus has a hometown because he's both God and man. He's from Bethlehem and from Galilee because he was born in Bethlehem and was brought up in Galilee. I was brought up in Mexico, but I was born in Colombia. So where am I from? Well, I can answer either way. I can say I'm from Mexico or I can say I'm from Colombia. How I answer depends on what I think people are trying to find out when they ask the question. Both are true, although in a a slightly different way. So this designation of Christ, this objection to Christ as being from Galilee and them holding that up as, well, Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth can't be the Christ because Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem. That's ironic. John has a number of these ironies in his gospel where the things that people say to criticize Christ or as an objection to Christ will immediately be recognized by the followers of Christ as, oh yeah, that's another proof that he is who he said he was. And this is what happens here. Those of us who are in the know, those of us who know he was born in Bethlehem, we hear them say this and they're like, yeah, that's a ridiculous objection. They had no good reason not to believe. I think that's why John sets it out this way. By using this specific example of an objection that we know to be ignorant, 
he highlights that nobody ultimately has a good reason not to believe. Now, here we should maybe qualify a little bit. As I've said before, there's a spectrum of objections or unresolved questions about Christ. Some people have genuine nagging questions that are holding them back, but that are capable of being answered. Some people just raise whatever they can think of because they don't want to believe. Well, you can tell a lot of times by whether or not somebody is open to receiving the additional information that would clarify everything. What are we going to do with the fact that some people are saying, we don't know where Christ is from. Nobody will know where he's from. So he can't be Christ because we know where he's from versus now they don't know where he's from. They think he's from Nazareth and they don't even know that he's from Bethlehem. What about that one? How do we put those things together? Well, first of all, people can just be wrong. That's, that's a strong option. But if there's a point behind that, there was a vague understanding that the Messiah would be human, sure, but that he would be more than human. Well, now, with clearer light, with fuller information, we can see that the Messiah is 100% truly human, but he is also truly God. So we now have the tools to put those things together. So what do we do with all of this? As we've seen that these objections to Christ are illegitimate, some of them are very insincere, and some of them you can understand where people would have a point. Paul acknowledges this, that it's difficult to believe in Christ in this sense, that he goes against our expectations. The Greeks are seeking wisdom, and Christ seems like foolishness to them. The Jews were seeking power or a sign of power, and Christ seemed like weakness to them. So we can understand that there are things that people experience that make it challenging for them to believe. But we ought to distinguish. That is not the same as saying that somebody has good reason not to believe. You understand the difference. There can be subjective difficulty. That's not an objective reason not to believe. So with regard to ourselves, we have no reason not to believe in Christ. These questions have answers. These objections have solutions. With regard to how we interact with others, we can understand that there are challenges to believing in Christ, not as an excuse for somebody not to do that, but in order to be patient with them, to work with them, to bring them along, to try to answer those questions. But what at bottom is the problem? Well, the problem is that people are looking for a savior who makes sense to them. They're looking for a savior who fits within their mental model of how things work. And the Lord Jesus does not do that. He does not conform to our expectations. He shatters our expectations and rebuilds them around himself. He's fundamental. He's central. He's the great fact. Come to terms with that fact and see everything else in its light, you'll be fine. Try to squeeze that fact into a pre-existing grid, you're going to have problems. So it basically does come down to this. Does Christ know 
better than you do. If Christ doesn't meet your expectations, should he change in order to satisfy you? Or should your expectations change in order to reflect reality? The reality that Christ has come, that Christ has lived and died and risen again, that Christ overcame the world and the devil and the flesh by dying. We would all like to see just instinctively, we'd like to see our Savior coming, conquering and to conquer, eliminating our enemies, exalting us. That would make sense. That would be easy to recruit people for. But that's not what Christ did. The Lord of heaven shows up in an impoverished family, in a manger, in a small town. The savior of the world has to run away to Egypt so he won't be killed. And so on through the rest of the story. Christ is counterintuitive. That's the challenge of the gospel. He doesn't meet your expectations. Well, you can do a couple of things with that. You can reject him because no prophet comes from Galilee. You can reject him illegitimately without good reason is what I'm saying there. You can marinate in confusion, say, well, I don't know, and never come to a decision. That is essentially rejecting him. You're saying, well, it's not important enough to decide. It's not important enough to figure out. I'll just be confused and keep going. Or you can say, it doesn't matter if he breaks my expectations because he's more important than my expectations. He's more important than my filter through which I analyze the world. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He offers himself to us in spite of our confusions, in spite of our expectations, in spite of the ways we try to put him in a little box and then blame him for our confusions. He extends that offer today. Come to Christ and drink. Amen.